1: Death is the inevitable consequence of living. And when you consider the end, you probably conjure an image of peacefulness, contentment, love, and even acceptance. Pope John Paul II proclaimed in 1980 that suffering during the last moments of life has a special place in God's plan. Listen
3: his voice, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid.
1: According to estimates, a third of all people throughout the world die in pain. This begs the question, should the last right you have in your life be to end it how you so wish? The response to that fundamental question has led to a global debate. Euthanasia quite literally translates as a good death. And with the modern advancement of medicine, we have prolonged dying as well as living. So can it ever be right, or indeed good, to end a human life? For this story, we're focusing solely on assisted dying, the practice whereby a person suffering from a terminal illness or incurable condition is helped to take their own life. I'm Jake Warren, and this is Undiscovered, The show that brings you the stories you didn't know you cared about. Stories that are considered often taboo.
0: It's also, you know, a very distressing thing to have to potentially fly off to another country simply to die.
1: Stories that span the religious, moral, medical, and even political.
4: And it's frustrating that MPs clearly are so out of step with the views of their own constituents and the general public.
1: Stories that highlight the issues for some of the most vulnerable
3: in society. The biggest single argument is that it increases the vulnerability of disabled people. Alright, let's
1: get into it. The best place to start this story is in America, with a woman called Barbara Coombs Lee, one of the pioneers and architects of the movement to legalize assisted dying, not only in the States, but the world over.
2: I'm Barbara Coombs Lee. I'm the president of Compassion and Choices, and I have been in that position since 1996 or so. We are a national organization and our chief advocacy is around medical aid and dying. My 25 years in nursing and medicine was just kind of one long sensitization experience. And I sometimes say that the work I ended up doing, advocating for autonomy and dignity and choice at the end of life, was kind of a redemption for the atrocities I personally committed in my days of intensive care. When I was a young nurse, I subjected people to tying them to the bed frames when they fought their tubes, pushing large-borne needles into very small, fragile veins, passing tubes down noses and throats, and sedating people who were on a ventilator and fighting the ventilator. Much of it is kind of barbaric and in those early days that was really the norm and you know frankly many people endured a lot of torture before they died and it's taken 40 years um for the realization to kick in that that's not appropriate for people who are old and frail and terminally ill and close to death from their cancer. Um, that's just brutalizing a dying body. Um, w- once I had those experiences to uh, kind of bring the problem home to me in, in vivid, vivid, bold relief, It was just natural to launch into a career that educated people, sensitized people, alerted people to the kind of empowerment, discernment that they would need to exercise in order to avoid those sorts of horrific scenes at the end of life.
1: It's really interesting the way in which you talk about your medical career, you know, 25 years as a nurse, because we always think as medical practitioners as you know upholding the Hippocratic oath, you know, it's being a positive thing in order to save lives and stop suffering.
2: But those conversations didn't happen in 1972. They don't happen often enough now. People's health status changes. The quality of their life changes. And so their their priorities change. Their desires change.
1: You were one of the authors of the you know the Oregon Deaf and Dignity Act from nineteen ninety four. For those that don't know, maybe you could explain exactly what that is.
2: The Oregon Death with Dignity Act was the first law in the nation to authorize the practice known as medical aid in dying. And what that means is it authorizes an eligible person, an eligible person is one who is terminally ill and mentally competent, an adult and a resident of the state, to ask their physician for a prescription for medication that if they were to decide to take it would cause them to go to sleep very rapidly and die peacefully in their sleep. This law has been in effect since 1997. It was held up in court um, for three years before it came online. It's been challenged in every branch of government, legislatively, executive branch, the judicial branch, multiple times. It has withstood all of that. Um, Oregonians like it very, very much. They've had over 20 years of experience um, with it now. It's considered a hallmark of patient-directed care.
1: Although initially the law was challenged to make assisted dying legal in 1994, it took three years of legal battles and appeals before it became active.
3: That year, Oregon voters approved a ballot initiative allowing doctors to prescribe lethal medication if a terminally ill patient of sound mind
1: requests it.
2: The patient ultimately is the decision maker and also the decision maker about that crucial balance between quality of life and its absolute quantity. Since 1997, Oregonians have had the ability to make that judgment for themselves and we value it very highly.
1: You talk about eligibility. How did you determine the right criteria for someone to be eligible?
2: The criteria is someone who is terminally ill, that is within reasonable medical judgment, they are likely to die within six months, and mentally capable. And so the parameters of that bill where the individual is in control from the beginning of the process, where they make a request to their physician, to the end of the process when they decide whether or not they will take the medication themselves it's a law about autonomy
1: and what barriers were you up against in order to actually pass the act
2: well there are opponents um there are there are vigorous opponents who believe that no individual no human being should have the authority to set the terms of their own death (laughs) Um, and those are primarily doctrinal They arise mostly from the doctrine of the Catholic Church. But that doctrine has, it's really embedded in medical ethics as well. It has become embedded in medical ethics over the last hundred years or so. But irrespective of that, we don't live in a theocracy. We live in a pluralistic country where the law and Catholic doctrine or any church doctrine, any religious doctrine, are separate. And so a doctrine of a church shouldn't be enshrined in the law. People should be able to determine their own religious beliefs and have their own relationship with the divine and make their own decisions about crucial questions of of life and love and death without that being legislated by the country. When we were drafting the law, 10 people or so in this church basement 25 years ago, we did not imagine we were drafting some kind of model law for the world. We were drafting something that we believed the voters of Oregon would feel comfortable voting for and then looked forward to implementing the law and hoped that it would serve people well. When you say, does it go too far? There are people who believe it goes too far in both directions. There are people who believe it goes too far in its protections, that too few people are are eligible. Um, There are people who believe that it goes too far in terms of the bureaucracy, all the steps. You know, in order to qualify, there is a lot of procedure. You need to make two requests to two physicians, those physicians need to make attestations about your mental capacity, that in fact you are capable of making healthcare decisions, that you actually are terminally ill, that you are not being coerced, there's nothing in your environment that is an undue influence on your decision making. A second physician needs to make similar findings. Then you need to sign a form, making a formal request that has to be signed by witnesses that also attest to your mental state and that you're not being coerced as you sign this form. There's a 15-day waiting period and there's a 48-hour waiting period between the, the written request and receiving the prescription. So there are, there are lots of hoops and hurdles to, to get through. Every one of those, yes, it's a safeguard, but it's also a limitation. There are some people who are close to death, they are getting weaker and weaker by the hour sometimes, and 15 days and 48 hours sometimes is quite, quite a challenge.
1: Barbara also recognizes that although changing the law is heralded as success, it is merely the starting point, especially in the quest for hearts and minds.
2: Passing a law is the first step, then the work begins. Because society needs to change habits, expectations, responses to adapt, to integrate, to normalize the change that you have just authorized. So regular hospitals, clinics, um, physician panels uh, need to decide that they will include medical aid in dying in their menu of end-of-life options, that it will not be considered something off to the side, at the margins, where it can be, you know, demonized, ostracized, targeted. It needs to be normalized and integrated into medical care and understand that, that it is theirs to ask for.
1: And some people make the argument that um, that once you start saying that certain people are eligible to take their own lives, It becomes a system that's open to abuse.
2: Well that's what laws are for. Laws are for the purpose of drawing bright lines and outlining what society accepts and supports and what society does not accept and does not support. If we're worried about someone being forced to proactively self administer medication that they requested in front of witnesses and survive the scrutiny of two physicians we should also be very concerned about people who stop their ventilation or stop taking their medications just stopping taking your medication you know that could be a form of accelerating death as well so i don't i don't actually see this very controlled, transparent, clear lines, clear procedure, multiple safeguards, many checks and balances as the imposition of risk. I see it as the mitigation of risk. You know, people don't go through this process because they want to die. People go through this process because they want to avoid suffering. It's a tremendous relief of anxiety to know that if you find yourself at the verge of your worst nightmare you have a way out and people their mood changes their families report how more engaged in life they are once that anxiety is relieved and people have the medication in hand Um, and then the other thing that it goes to show is that Uh, You know, of course people aren't coercing other people to take the medication. You know, family members want their loved ones around as long as possible. And sometimes death overtakes us before we ever have the need for any intervention.
1: In understanding the lay of the land in the UK, we spoke with someone fearful and committed to campaigning for keeping assisted dying against the law.
3: My name is Phil Friend. Um, I'm uh, one of the supporters and conveners of an organisation called Not Dead Yet UK. Uh, That organisation works to maintain the status of the law in relation to assisted suicide. We're opposed to a change in the law. I'm a disabled person myself and have been since the 1950s. So that's a bit about me.
1: It is worth noting that Phil and his group actively use the term assisted suicide rather than assisted dying, as they feel it is a more accurate description of the truth and less sanitising. Not Dead Yet UK is committed to maintaining the illegality of assisted dying, assisted suicide in the UK. You know, would you describe yourself as a, as a sort of pressure group?
3: Yeah, I think, I think we are um, a pressure group. What we mainly do is provide information to people of a, a you know who need to know what the arguments are for maintaining the status quo what are those arguments the biggest single argument is that it increases the vulnerability of disabled people but we're not arguing that suicide is wrong if if people want to do that then that's their choice what we are deeply concerned about is legalizing suicide so that people whose lives may be very complicated or difficult or where they are very vulnerable, uh, that it would be easier in some ways for them to be killed or to ask for help to die. So that's the primary mission. I think what's interesting for us is the fact that there is a judgment made that, you know, for severely disabled people, their lives don't have any meaning. So therefore, it would make more sense for them to die. But we would never take that line with a non-disabled person, for example.
1: Phil as a person with a disability, feels it is his responsibility to stick up for the vulnerable.
3: We are very small, we have very limited resources, and the amount of resource being put against us are huge and considerable. A lot of it is about opinion, you know, public opinion. I don't know when the water was last tested here, but for example, it is argued that hanging would be favoured by the public. General public for certain crimes, and yet somehow we've never, you know, that's been ignored. Um, why would it? Sh- why should public opinion hold sway on this when actually what it's doing is potentially condemning a lot of people to a very early death? So
1: interesting you say that because one thing I have heard for the continued illegality of assisted dying in the UK is, well, we wouldn't bring back capital punishment just in case on the off chance that one person was executed that was innocent of the crime. Now I guess. The same argument could be made for if there were legalised assisted dying laws in the UK for if someone was exploited, if just one person was, you know, made to die and they didn't want to, then, then that undermines the whole legal uh, framework of it.
3: Although it's not a direct equivalent, there are very many similarities, aren't there? And I think what's, what's happening in the, the suicide, assisted suicide debate, is the idea that the first law of, of, of I think, the first responsibility of our government and all governments is to protect its citizens, to look after its citizens. So that cannot be right. You know, to put lots of people at risk there are, you know, 16 million disabled people in the UK. We know that many of them don't have anything like threatening conditions, but many do. And to think about the lives, their lives being any less valued and therefore safe than anybody else's seems to me to be, and to those of us who work within uh, Not Dead Yet UK, to be, you know, really unfair. It, it comes down, I guess, to personal choice. And can we be sure that's true? One of the single biggest reasons that people want to be assisted to die is because they feel they're a burden on others. It's not about pain and suffering. You know, we've looked at the research. It's about, you know, being a burden to others. So now let's drop that into the equation and say that people are making this decision based on their own decision. I think that there are all sorts of subtle pressures applied to people. Sometimes that are not, you know, deliberate or anything of that kind, but nonetheless make you feel. You know, as a person myself with a severe disability, I know there are times when I am a burden to other people. I know it. You know, I've lived with it. Uh, I'm not one of these people that want to end my life as a result of that. But the fact of the matter is that there are very subtle pressures at work. The other thing that we haven't discussed our needs discussing, is what about the rights of those who are being asked to assist? The family members, what pressure are they under? How does it feel to be asked to help your loved one to die? Those kinds of questions I think need raising in this debate because the family have rights too. As for the existing
1: assisted dying laws around the world proposed as a template for the UK, Phil feels they are dangerous.
3: Well, I think Oregon is hugely flawed. It is beginning to demonstrate one of our biggest concerns, which is the the slippery slope idea. That what you do first is you allow people within a very tightly defined area to seek assisted suicide. And then what you do is you legislate a year or two later for another group and if you look at Oregon there are now attempts to get people with non terminal illnesses but with chronic illnesses such as pain to be allowed to end their lives and when we talk about doctors providing oversight we know that in Oregon people now shop for doctors if their doctor turns them down they go to another doctor so these safeguards so-called safeguards really are not that safe and Wherever we've looked, and believe me, we've looked, none of the safeguards that have been provided or you know, put out there as safeguards have really stood up to the rigour of just how safe they are.
1: Phil interprets this as the potential opening of the floodgates rather than strict parameters for eligibility.
3: So mental ill health, for example, is now beginning to be a subject that qualifies for assisted suicide in some jurisdictions. So whether we like it or not, this is what's happening. There's campaigns by individuals or or groups of supporters to get their group included in the definition. I think Pandora's box is a really good way of putting it. Once you've got the lid off, it is very difficult to stop what comes next. And we are resisting the change to the change in the law to enable us to defend that position, to protect the vulnerable. That's what this is about. It's not about denying the rights of people to end their lives if they want to. And if, you know, one of the questions is that if you wish to kill yourself, you can. There's no law says you can't do that. But to get others to assist you is the problem.
1: You know, you you mentioned earlier that family and friends should always be in consideration it's not just the person who is choosing or wants to choose their own own life and and i was thinking that if you think about it realistically if someone is to just choose of their own volition to take their own life in the current situation in the uk that could be a process which would be far more stressful traumatic you know distressing for family members and friends who perhaps hadn't had the opportunity to be with that family member or friend in their last moments in a place of comfort
3: I do understand that. What we're talking about in this conversation in the assisted suicide, assisted dying area, is that we are asking other people to do it for us. We're involving them in the actual act. And that is illegal in this country. And what our opponents are proposing is making it legal. We have never felt that there are any safeguards in place that guarantee that not one individual would be pressured into dying, going back to, you know, our earlier point about hanging and public, you know, that point. So if one individual dies as a result of this legislation being, uh, and and they shouldn't have, then that's one person too many.
1: You know, public sentiment is changing and that more people would be in favour of assisted dying to be legalised in the UK.
3: What tends to happen with public opinion is that public opinion largely is ill-informed. It's headlines, it's sound bites. It's not real in-depth knowledge. We can't all be experts on everything. What they tend to do is to focus on things like it would be a kindness to let people go. It would be it, it would end their suffering. Uh, we do it for dogs and cats. It's that kind of level of knowledge, and I'm not sure that that, you know, we've given enough information to the public so that they understand that the lives of disabled people can be incredibly valuable, they can make huge contributions to society.
1: It all comes back to that point of personal choice. It comes up to whether you believe that your life is harder to live or worth living. And then it's, well, do you fit within the legal framework to actually end your own life, which would be, you know, have a terminal disease, mentally competent, and of course, you know, verified by medical practitioners.
3: Going back to the safeguards, there is huge disputes from the medical profession about when end of life is coming. Nobody has ever been accurate about saying you've got six months to live. So having that as a safeguard has been shown to be completely useless. Some people die within days. Some people last three, four, five years. So when is this six months window? the safeguards we've seen being applied or talked about by the courts is doctors. Well, these doctors may not know the patient at all, but could sign forms allowing assisted suicide. So it's not a safeguard. These are not safeguards.
1: In order to understand the plans and likelihood of legalising assisted dying in the UK... We spoke to one of the leading organisations, campaigning to that end.
4: I'm Ellie Ball. I'm Media and Campaigns Officer at Dignity in Dying. Dignity in Dying is a UK-based campaigning organisation. We're calling for a change in the law that would allow terminally ill, mentally competent adults in their final six months the chance of an assisted death. Assisted dying is really, it's about compassion, it's about relieving suffering. With assisted dying we're really talking about people at the very end of their lives whose choice over whether they live or die has already been taken away from them, they've got a terminal, incurable illness, they're expected to die in the next six months, and really they just want a chance to have a say over how and when they die. Um, And with the case with many terminal illnesses, it can be a long, protracted, traumatic death for them and their loved ones. And they just want the choice to be able to say goodbye when the time is right for them and slip away peacefully with dignity, you know, in their own bed, in their own home.
1: How big a scale of a problem is this? You know, how many people are there in the UK? who are terminally ill who want the rights to be able to have an assisted death here you know is this a case where it's 10 people a year or is it a case where it's 10,000 people a year you know how how big is this issue
4: around every 8 days we know that someone from the UK travels to Switzerland for an assisted death and with the case of Dignitas alone there are other organizations in Switzerland that offer this but with Dignitas alone over 400 people have traveled there from the UK since 2002 i believe And speaking to people, we know that around over half of Brits say that they would consider travelling to Switzerland if they were terminally ill for an assisted death. And two thirds of people would risk breaking the law to help a loved one get there. But only a quarter actually has the £10,000 needed to get there. So there's clearly a huge gap between those who would want this choice and who are actually able to access it.
1: So what is the state of the current law? What does it say at the moment?
4: So when the Suicide Act meant that suicide became legal, it made assisting a suicide a crime, uh, which means that anyone who helps someone else to die could be liable for a jail sentence of up to 14 years. And this can include even accompanying someone to Dignitas in Switzerland, for example. So obviously, ending your own life is not illegal. Individuals wanting an assisted death in the UK often do travel to Switzerland, for example. It's one of the countries uh, where assisted dying is legal and it's the only country in the world that allows non-residents to have an assisted death there.
1: One of the strongest criticisms of the current state of the law is that it discriminates on a basis of privilege and wealth.
4: So, you know, going to Switzerland is seen as an option for people in the UK, but it's only an option for those people who have loved ones that are willing to break the law, who have the average cost of £10,000 to get there, who still have the strength and the health to get there. Um, It means that often people end up dying long before they actually want to, because they have to make sure that they're strong enough to get there. So really, by banning assisted dying in the UK, we're not solving the problem we're just outsourcing it to Switzerland and that isn't even an option for most people in the UK who don't have a spare 10 grand in the bank. We know that around 300 dying people every year in England do that often alone, confused, in pain you know it's cruel that the law forces people to take such drastic measures.
1: So what exactly are the changes that you guys are advocating for?
4: Well, it wouldn't be a huge step into the unknown for the UK to make this change. The law that we campaign for in the UK is based on one that's been operating in Oregon in the US for the past 20 years, incredibly safely and effectively. And that's been a very tightly restricted law, limited to terminally ill adults in their final six months of life.
1: But is it a system that could be open to abuse?
4: It's safer than the current situation. I mean, there's no, there's no safeguards in place to protect people from being coerced into going to Dignitas, for example. You can only investigate someone ending their own life after the fact. So we believe that bringing in a very tightly restricted law, similar to the one that's been operating in Oregon and since spread to several other states and other countries around the world, is the best course of action for the UK. Of course, protecting potentially vulnerable people is at the forefront of our concerns. But that question, you know, it ignores the fact that when we're talking about assisted dying, we're talking about people who are already dying. They're already at the end of their life. We're not talking about ending the lives of anyone who would otherwise be alive. This isn't assisted suicide. This isn't euthanasia. It's just easing a natural death that is already happening. It's not about cutting months and years off someone's life. And we are confident that the safeguards that we're proposing in the law that we're putting forward for the UK are safe enough to prevent any abuse or coercion taking place.
1: Some polling was done. You you have a sense, I guess, of the appetite of British people. Is this something that most people would advocate to have some form of assisted dying legalised here?
4: Certainly, over the past couple of decades, opinion polls have consistently shown that around 80% of the British public are supportive of a change in the law that would allow assisted dying as a choice for terminally ill people. And it's frustrating that MPs clearly are so out of step with the views of their own constituents and the general public.
1: So, if most people consistently over the last few decades have said, actually, this is a good idea, What are the barriers? Why isn't it legal? Is it a cultural thing?
4: The chief opponents to law change, there is certainly a religious element to that, Um, although polling that we've done has found that most religious people do support this. There are certain groups who oppose assisted dying, who claim to speak for great swathes of people, such as Not Dead Yet, for example, who claim to speak for most disabled people, uh, despite the fact that In polling that we've done, we've found that most disabled people do support terminally ill people having this choice at the end of their lives.
1: This is perhaps where political constraints come into play. An MP taking a stand could be appropriately named an act of political suicide for such an emotive issue, whereas maintaining the status quo makes for an easier life.
4: Our job is to campaign for the law that we think is best for the UK, but really it will be up to Parliament to decide. We want to make sure that all the evidence from across the world is scrutinised, that we can learn from the successes overseas and then craft the laws that are best for the UK.
1: There have been attempts to change the law in the past. In 2015, a vote was brought before Parliament, which ultimately failed. Also in 2018, the small, semi-autonomous island of Guernsey in the British Isles looked like it could be the first to legalise assisted dying. However, that too failed. So is there quite as much appetite for change as is claimed?
4: That's another example where there was huge public support in Guernsey. We thought the numbers might be there, but clearly there's more work to be done. And actually, Guernsey, the, the margin of defeat was much smaller than the last Westminster bill, so clearly it is moving in the right direction.
1: Do you think it's a a case of domino effect, when one place legalises it, the rest of the UK will sort of step in line behind it?
4: It could be, but in the meantime, terminally ill people are suffering every day. We don't have time. Um, It's becoming more and more embarrassing as other jurisdictions around the world do take this step.
1: Why do you think people should be able to end their own lives?
4: I think it's a matter of compassion. It's about kindness. It's about giving people the freedom and control they have over the rest of their lives. We, you know, We are supposed to be a liberal progressive country that upholds freedom. We're allowed to make choices about our lives, our bodies throughout our lives, but then we're denied this choice at the very end. Um, we allow people to withdraw treatment that will lead to their death. We allow people to starve themselves to death, but we won't allow people to just take a simple medication that will allow them to say goodbye, slip away, peacefully. It's just contradictory and it's cruel.
1: You know, there's the old saying that we're five years behind America. Well, actually, they've had a legalised dying law for 21 years. So we're 21 years behind them. You know, the America sneezes and we catch a cold. So just how far behind are we the rest of the world?
4: It's disgraceful how far behind we are in the UK. It's ridiculous that a terminally ill person that lives in California or Montreal could have access to an assisted death yet because they're in the UK they can't have that option.
1: So if I was to ask you to look into your crystal ball what does the future hold for us? Is this a case of when not if?
4: It certainly is. We know that this is a change that is going to happen for the UK. It's simply a matter of time. And for the sake of the terminally ill people at the moment who want this choice, we hope that it happens as soon as possible.
1: Time is never an issue until it becomes short. If you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness and wanted the option of assisted death legally at home in the UK, what would you do? We spoke to someone going through that very dilemma.
0: My name is Patrick Weimer. I was diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer in June, 2017. I've been having chemotherapy and I was also on a drugs trial for a period of time. My prognosis isn't particularly good. The doctor's view currently is that um, my life expectancy is probably sort of somewhere between one and three years, which obviously is a difficult thing to come to terms with. I'm lucky to have a very supportive family. I've got uh, my wife, Sarah, and uh, two children, Alice, 24, and Tom, who's 20. I try and stay as active as possible. I also do my blog. I'm quite active on social media. And I'm quite so keen on publicising and sort of campaigning for issues around bowel cancer. I think bowel cancer is, is one of those cancers that probably gets a little bit less publicity than others. I basically had some stomach pains, and I'd been to see my GP because they became persistent. But nobody seemed particularly concerned, really. I think everybody thought it was probably something fairly routine, nothing particularly to to worry about. I was admitted to hospital as an emergency patient because the pains were getting very severe. And I was given a scan and an emergency operation and woke up um, basically to find I had cancer. You know, that was, um, you know, that was a shock. So until I'd had a subsequent scan, it wasn't completely clear the extent to which it had extended elsewhere in my body. And I think, you know, I, it, it was extremely tough. You know, I, I suppose what I found difficult is I was 52 when I was diagnosed. I'm, I'm just 54 now. And I think um, what I found particularly difficult for me was the fact that I've got two children in their early 20s who, you know, I very possibly won't see their lives develop over the next uh you know, 20 or 30 years, which I could have reasonably expected to be the case. And I think that's, I think for me, that was probably the toughest thing of all. You, you kind of feel short change. You feel that, um, you know, you should live until you're, I don't know, until your mid 80s or something. And instead, you've got to look at, um, you know, potentially only living for another two or three years. And that's, uh, you know, that's quite a tough thing to uh, to accept. And you, you basically just got to kind of recalibrate everything and think in terms of, weeks or months rather than years.
1: Have you reflected for perhaps that idea of, you know, l- losing your quality of life and being uncomfortable? Is that something that you are thinking about going forward?
0: One thing I haven't really pushed is to know what is likely to happen towards the end of my life. I suppose it's something that I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous about. <laughs> it's, it's not something I've sort of asked the doctors particularly, you know, what is likely to happen in that last period of my life um, when I get to it um, assuming that um, you know bowel cancer is what um, gets me in the end but um it's you know it, but it, but it, it does worry me you know the whole notion of a sort of prolonged decline and of a painful end you know it, it, it is the thing that worries me and I, I think the you know the driving th- thing for me is to ensure that things are, are as calm as possible really and and just um you know that I can sort of, you know, hopefully when the time comes, kind of go out on my own terms, um, you know, with family around me.
1: For Patrick, honesty and transparency in his situation is key, as it may help others. You know, one of the things that youth is important to do and enjoy doing is, you know, is, is, is effectively writing a blog, being active on social media, you know, stimulating conversation, getting people as informed as possible. And one thing that you've written about is assisted dying in the UK. What is your sort of feelings around the current laws of, of ending your own life in the UK? I mean, the, the fact that it, that it is it is illegal.
0: I think that it's it's, it's a shame. For me, it's all about choice. And I think the distressing thing in particular for people is that you know the only real option you know is an extremely expensive option. It's also you know a very distressing thing to have to potentially fly off to another country simply to die and also to um you know involve family or friends in making a decision and assisting you in something that is that is actually illegal and it's it's not something that you know, I or I would have thought most people would want to do likely. You know, when things are coming to an end, the last thing you want to be is in sort of unfamiliar surroundings. Um, You know, in some kind of clinic, you want to be in a, you know, at home, you want to be surrounded by family and friends, you know, with their support. And you want to be in, you know, places that are familiar to you.
1: How does it make you feel that actually there are places around the world where if you just happen to live there, you know, you would have this ability to end your life on your own terms? And obviously now here in the UK, you don't.
0: You know, I'm, I'm British. I You know, I live in Wales. Uh, I love living here. I, I wouldn't go and sort of live somewhere else simply to, you know, end my life on my own terms. But I, I, I do feel that other countries are more progressive in this and that um, I'm, I'm convinced that there's a momentum behind this and that it will move in this direction over a period of time. I'm convinced that there's a um, this is the kind of direction of travel now and that it will happen. It may be too late for me, it may be too late for a lot of other people. Yeah, I have considered it. Um, my, my, my main problem with it is that to, um, I, or I would feel very uncomfortable asking somebody to assist me uh, you know, in, in, in say travelling to Switzerland to end my life. But, you know, if if the situation became so acute in my case where I felt I couldn't continue, then maybe it is something that I would consider. But I I, I would prefer I would prefer not to. You know, for me it's about giving people that option. And it's it's some it's an option that I would like to have personally. And it's an option that I believe that, you know, most people in this country, when they think about it, um you, you know, would probably share that view.
1: Barbara Coombs Lee's Oregon Project remains as the fundamental template for almost every law legalising assisted dying throughout the world. One of the newest to be passed was in the state of New Jersey in March 2019. In that same month, the Royal College of Physicians dropped its long-standing opposition to assisted dying to adopt an officially neutral position, following the UK's largest ever survey of medical opinion on the issue. Dignity and Dying say, with 80% of the British public supporting terminally ill people in having a say over how and when they die, it's clear that this issue is not going away. Phil and Not Dead Yet are concerned that the relentless pursuit of change in the law is very worrying and ominous. Patrick says he's well, although he recently had to change to a different chemotherapy as the previous drug was becoming less effective. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jake Warren, produced and edited by Sandra Ferrari, with additional production support by Linos Jones, Douglas Detrick, and Rosalind Kafour. We also have original theme music from Matt Huxley. The end of this story brings the first season of Undiscovered to an end. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please do leave us a review on
4: Apple Podcasts because actually that does really help us out. Thank you.